from coast to coast to coast. You're listening to Terra Informa. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Hannah Cunningham and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news. I would like to begin this episode by acknowledging that Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, a campus and community recording studio located in Edmonton, Alberta. We are situated on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. This week's episode focuses a lot on grief and other emotions, especially in this current time of environmental loss. Canada's past and present colonial history has caused a tremendous amount of loss and grief to the First Peoples of this land. And we encourage our listeners to reflect on this and how these emotions play into treaty and the relationships we build with one another, as well as our connection to this land, the connections of those that came before us, and the connections of those that will come after. This week, we're bringing you an archive episode from October 2018 featuring Terra Informer Dylan Hall and author Stephen Jenkinson. In this episode, they explore concepts related to elderhood, age, grief, and death, and what these evoke when viewed through eyes apprehending the relentless destruction of diversity. But before we jump back to 2018, here are some headlines from the here and now. The annual World Economic Forum, Davos 2020, took place in Switzerland from January 21st to 25th. This year was the 50th anniversary of the gathering, where, as Guardian writer Larry Elliott puts it, quote, billionaires tell millionaires how the middle class should live their lives, end quote. The topic of climate change was front and center throughout the meeting, with youth climate activists like Greta Thunberg from Sweden, Vanessa Nakate from Uganda, and Lukina Thiel from Switzerland in attendance. On Friday, January 24th, a youth climate protest marched through the town of Davos. Friday also featured two economic heavy hitters disagreeing on how to address the climate crisis, as well as the criticisms on the lack of action coming from world leaders voiced by youth climate activists around the world. United States Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin stated during a panel that long-term planning is ineffective when it comes to trying to analyze and deal with climate change, and that he doesn't think it's possible to model long-term risks with any kind of certainty. President of the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde, disagreed, saying that it is necessary to assess the risks that climate change poses to financial markets and the economy so changes can be anticipated and hopefully mitigated. Earlier last week, 13 people were arrested at an Indigenous youth occupation of a British Columbia Energy and Mines Ministry office in opposition of a coastal gas link liquefied natural gas pipeline running through the traditional territories of the Wet'suwet'en Nation. A few days later, on Friday, January 24th, a protest was held at the British Columbia Legislature Building to urge Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and BC Premier John Horgan to respect Wet'suwet'en laws. 
The hereditary chiefs from the Wet'suwet'en Nation say that the coastal gassing pipeline project does not have their consent. On December 31, 2019, the BC Supreme Court extended an injunction against Wet'suwet'en members, authorizing the RCMP to arrest and remove anyone who they deem to have, quote, reasonable and probable grounds to believe are in contravention of the order, end quote. Premier Horgan has stated that the courts rule in favor of the project and that the rule of law will ensure that work continues on the pipeline project. Protester Colin Sutherland Wilson, regarding Horgan's statement, said, quote, When you say that the project is proceeding and that the rule of law must apply in BC, you are citing a court ruling that effectively says Indigenous law is ineffective, end quote. And now, without further ado, enjoy this week's archive episode. I first learned about Stephen Jenkinson through his writing on death. My father was diagnosed with a rare form of bone marrow cancer in November of 2016, and in May of 2017, six months later, he died. I came to Stephen's writing in the days and nights my dad was dying. It informed me then and to this day helps me contextualize and recognize much of what I experienced then in the stories of other people who Stephen writes about. People who have also experienced the medicalization of dying and the lack of conversation in our modern culture around death and grief, what Jenkinson calls our death phobia and grief illiteracy. My father proved ineligible for an extremely risky treatment, a painful bone marrow transplant, and it was Stephen's writing that helped me to see the blessing in that. In addition, As a lover of all manner of life on this planet, I'm very troubled by the time we're living in, and thus very interested in the perspective Stephen puts forward in his new book, Come of Age, A Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. In this book, Stephen argues that we live in a time where there are more old people in our culture than there have ever been. But the old person wisdom that should come with that isn't there, despite the boomer bulge, and a few notable exceptions, the older generation rarely seems to be focused on ensuring the persistence of the life that sustains us. In other words, there are very few elders. With that brief introduction of Stephen's work and hopefully a little bit of an understanding of where I was coming from, I turn now to my conversation with Stephen Jenkinson. You write about the death phobia that our culture has and the grief illiteracy and it's something that I've definitely noticed. Um, and I suppose in, in tying in come of age, our culture has a similar aversion or rejection to age as it has to death, um, is what I'm getting from much of what you're writing. And I'm wondering, what does our culture's rejection of age and death and fetish for youth and progress, what does that do to the aging and the aged and the dying and the dead? And to the middle-aged and to the young. Well, uh, the first thing it does is it fetishizes the notion that you can and should properly resist uh, the oncomingness of time and the changes uh, that ensue, that your obligation is to actually resist the realities of time. You could say that um, 
the unwillingness of the dominant culture of North America to live according to its frailties and according to its limits and ultimately unto its end condemns all of its citizenry to a kind of functional schizophrenia where you're vaguely aware that this won't last forever, but you're deeply encouraged at the same time to abandon that awareness entirely and turn it into a, a kind of prolonged um, con consumer-driven um, buying spree where you buy as many ex life experiences as you possibly can, uh, allegedly, I suppose, uh, to make the crash landing slightly more user-friendly. I should say that um, it's clear, it was clear to me when I worked in the death trade that, uh, that dying is a, a problem, has become a problem to solve uh, in the dominant culture of North America. Not a mystery to learn, but a problem to solve. And virtually every aspect of that repertoire was culturally derived and culturally endorsed and culturally employed and culturally enforced. It's an extraordinary combination of things. The people died badly, and the repertoire that more or less condemned them to die badly was provided to them by a culture that's demonstrably death-phobic, which is to say that a death-phobic culture's solution to itself routinely carries the death-phobia itself buried inside every one of the solutions. So when you, when you gain access to all these solutions, you're actually exercising another degree of death phobia in your efforts to try not to be fearful about it. And perhaps that's the heart of the beast, it seems to me, that you could imagine that all of these attempts to do it right, to do it better, to be all you can be, all of these rotate around this invisible axis of exerting and sustaining and exercising control. I heard this all the time towards the end of life, you know, people who were in the cheerleading squad, oftentimes in the counseling varieties, but also families, would routinely remind the dying person that they had an obligation to retain as much control, quote-unquote, over their life as they could, and not to give in to the physician or the pastor or anyone else in the circumstance. And the, the grim hilarity of that, that bit of advice goes like this. And when was that being in full control of your life supposed to begin? Do you really believe that a dying person is to continue to exert full control over their life, the same kind of control that they enjoyed in their times of physical mastery? And do you really believe that anyone at any point in their life is actually exercising dominion over their life? And if you're willing to concede the possibility that Virtually no one is. In a consumer culture, the allegation of control comes down to what you buy. It doesn't fundamentally come down to the real feeling tone of your existence. There's a lot in there that I find parallels with in, I suppose, what's happening to our world. And um, the subtitle of Come of Age is The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. And I wanted to add the time of trouble into the mixing pot of what we've been discussing. So I was very curious about 
your perception on that relationship between our culture's aversion to thinking about death and thinking about age and our aversion to thinking about climate change, species extinction, the whole turmoil? Well, first of all, um, I think it's important to acknowledge that um, for huge swaths of the population, there isn't really an aversion to thinking about climate change. So, Lots of people, if we could just be candid about it, lots of people are, quote-unquote, thinking about it to the extent to which they can bear to do so. Because of, at the end of the day, most of the thinking, I think, generates sense of immense amounts of impotence and uh, inability to respond or worse. But uh, so, I, so that comes around. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a brief story that illustrates this pretty well. I was doing a talk out in uh, Vancouver a couple of years ago, and the, na- the organizers named it Grief and Climate Change, which admittedly is a little clunky-sounding and prosaic, but um, at least it's fair warning, you could say. So about halfway through the event, uh, I, a couple of middle-aged, I would suppose, got up and stormed out, uh, audibly stormed out, made sure everybody knew that they were storming out. And as they did so, I heard one turn to the other with a kind of stage whisper that could be heard all over the auditorium. And one said to the other, well, I thought this was supposed to be about climate change, and stormed out the door. And I thought about that right at the moment that it occurred, and what occurred to me, what it meant was something like this that they really came to that event to get more climate change science information. The stuff that's available at your fingertips almost anywhere you want to look. And, you know, I'm, I'm claiming the answer is yes. That's probably what they came for. Why? Because they already had the grief thing sorted out? No. Because they had no intention of going anywhere near, quote, the grief thing, unquote. And when my talk was more occupied with grief than with climate change, this was reason enough for them to vacate the premises. Because there's something about grief that almost mimics, uh, it would appear, uh, the impotence that we feel in the face of climate change. The uh, sorrowing aspect of that seems to me that our willingness to live within any kind of limit and to admit any kind of frailty to have any respect for any kind of ending, especially the kind that we don't get a choice over, the unwillingness to to be governed by these things is so heartbreaking. The clear and patent lunacy of the thing is there to be seen for anyone who cares to see it. I was raised um, with a, a kind of mantra, and no one ever questioned it that I recall because it was a self-evident thing when it was said, and it was, respect your elders. Now, I've said this in front of rooms full of people, and you know the older half of the room all nods immediately. It's all familiar to all of them. But as you go down the chronology to younger and younger portions of the audience, what the phrase actually means to them changes according to how old somebody is. And this is what I've noticed. You know, there was a time where respect your elders was not said as an injunction or in some kind of exhortation. It was said as a description of the way things actually were. It meant two things. It meant that people were respecting their elders, and it meant that their elders were respectable. 
you can't leave the second one out, you see, because the chances are very good in these former times that I'm describing in a general way. If the elders of those eras were not respectable people, living deeply respectable lives, and I, by respectable, I don't mean law-abiding, then the chances are very good that people would not be respecting them. But if people were respecting them, one of the reasons for doing so would have been that they were bona fide elders. And the reason it's turned into an exhortation today, instead of a description of things, is because it is very, very difficult for someone of your generation to make the case that people of my generation are inherently respectable. You look around at the world that you are in the process of inheriting, and you cannot find any sign that people of my age live their entire lives as if people of your age would one day be on the scene. I think that's true. I look around, I cannot see much evidence that people of my age, as a generation, lived accordingly, governed themselves accordingly, made do with much less than was available, and a whole host of other possibilities. I think we are, we are in a very uh, calamitous path of abandoning limit now. We frankly do live a life at the level of a mythic and poetic understanding of life that forbids us to be sustaining or sustainable and obliges us simply to be sustained instead, which is to say the world is here for us and our good fortune and our sustenance and our maintenance. And uh, once you have that, you have what we have, which is people still continuing to debate whether or not there's enough, quote, hard science to legitimize being concerned. Well, my, my dad was dying. His terminal diagnosis was myelofibrosis, which is a rare bone marrow cancer. And perhaps it was the rootedness of, of bones, or I, I saw a similarity between what cancer is um, as something that is perpetually growing and, and destroying its habitat and the dominant culture's devotion to economic growth on all scales of the political spectrum. Um, but I was kind of hesitant to use that metaphor and I'm curious about how you feel about that metaphor, if you have any trepidation about it, and also about our society's devotion to growth. Uh, I wish it was devotion because then perhaps it could be reasoned with to a certain degree. But I think you should properly refer to it as a mania, not a devotion. And a mania is, is involuntary, really, by its nature. And I think that's our, our frank addiction to growth is on the maniacal side, not on the devotional side. I have no problem at all with the uh, analogy of, uh, of uh, the tumor because it's not an analogy. The tumor, um, we, we have a synonym for the word tumor. In polite conver conversation, in polite company, it's referred to as a growth. You see, I'm not making that up. I'm not the one who used it to describe that circumstance. It's a very commonly um, used uh, word in that regard. So it's very interesting that when the word growth is applied to personal betterment, it's never wondered about. 
the implications of it, I've never heard articulated. There's no concern that arises when people are going to the infinite number of seminars, the infinite number of weekends available to them, bettering themselves and so forth like this, because it's all upside. Is it really? Well, of course it's all upside, because be all you can be and all of that sort of thing. But ask yourself simply about the nature of growth itself, be it personal or economic or oncological, and ask yourself, from whence comes the increase that growth clearly signals? Because that's what it means. Growth means increase. It means more where there once was less. It means add to cart as you go. So where's all this more supposed to come from? And the answer is, if you have more as a mindset, then everything around you is there to service that increase. That means that the willingness to increase exponentially and without limit has a direct, demonstrable, chronic, and finally fatal uh, implication for the sustaining environment. And limitless growth is sociopathological, which is to say that it proceeds without any consideration of the consequences that emanate from it doing so. It's satisfied with its own growth, and it's not troubled in the least by the corollary consequences of growing. You're listening to Terra Informa, broadcasting from CJSR 88.5 Studios on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton. I'm in an environmental studies degree, and it's not rare for me to find in my classmates a, a disgust or a hatred for humans. Um, and I wonder, what do you think is the problem with misanthropy or, or human hatred in this time? I think it's pretty palpably there. Uh, and it go, it's as simple as this. It's, I don't mean this to sound ironic at all. But the simple truth of the matter is, is that the misanthropy of the current regime, particularly the alternative regime, particularly in, all, in many fields that have ECO in the front of it, it comes to this, <clears throat> that our misanthropy is simply the latest version of self-absorption. It's no different. Uh, here's a parallel. Lots of kids your age are come flooding down from the suburbs, down to the street corner, looking for fentanyl, right? Hmm. Oxycontin and things of this kind. And these things, you know, compared to what people were looking for drug-wise when I was your age, nobody that I can think of would ever have laid down money to buy a pain reliever. Although we granted fentanyl is a wicked, wicked morphine-derived, heavily addictive pain reliever, but a pain reliever it is. What kind of pain are these kids self-diagnosing and self-medicating for? I think you and I have been talking about it for the last hour. So I think that's what's going on. That's what's mobilizing amongst people your age, the idea that self-hatred and, and uh, misanthropy are conditions of real conscience and real alertness and real having come to an awakeness. 
And I'd like to counter that by suggesting that that's exactly what they aren't. I'm not saying it's not understandable. I'm just saying that in a time where we're in, in you know, some considerable trouble, you are no spiritual warrior by virtue of being, you know, hateful of all things human. Well, Stephen, perhaps I'll, I'll finish with this then. Rather than finishing with human hatred, it, it's not an easy thing, but I feel the desire or the importance of attending and, and paying attention to and being present to death and the trouble and perhaps mobilizing that grief and that sadness that I feel about what's happening. Um, not to boil everything down to a how-to or what anybody else should do, but that's something that I've received from this. And I wonder if that is at all something that you might hope for. Or well, first of all, I don't have any hope myself. I found it to be enormously useful to be able to proceed without any hope at all. Hmm. That doesn't mean I'm hopeless either, because that's the same side of the same coin. I'm simply saying I'm not trafficking either one of those things, hope or hopelessness. So my way of proceeding is free of hope, you could say, at this point in the proceedings. And that I don't need a sense that everything's going to work out in the end to mobilize me on behalf of a better day, you see. And that's why I've written the things that I do and, and why I'm out in many places in the world when I really should probably be at home and taking my ease at, at 64 years old. But it's not working out that way, you see. And... But I would, I would certainly corroborate what you began your last comment with and say that there is something about endings and, and frailties and limits of all kinds that are enormously endorsing of life and really whisper of how extraordinarily precious it, it is to be human and to be alive and to have lived long enough to awaken to the fact that that is indeed what you are. And that, that it's been granted to you. And that you've been spared so far. And that, you know, with all of the hurt and all of the trouble and the confusion, that's certainly part of the deal. This is not the entirety of what you know or of what's come to you. And that you're, you know, you're, you're to be called on and counted upon now. And until the time that you can't answer the bell anymore, your obligation is to answer the bell especially the one that seems to have stopped ringing. So I'll, I'll just leave you with this observation. I'm tempted to talk about Leonard Cohen because, you know, he's got that beautiful line, ring the bell that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. how the light gets in maybe I'll leave it there I think he said it better than I ever could and music is a gift and I very much look forward to attending the concert that you will be performing at with Gregory Hoskins and band that's right Nights of Grief and Mystery coming to 
Edmonton in a few weeks, I think. You betcha, October 10th, Wednesday. You go imagine everything we've talked about to a rock and roll sensibility, because that's what it'll be like. Thank you so much, Stephen. I really yes, appreciate it. Thank you for your time. time and all your questions. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. That was Dylan and Stephen Jenkinson talking about elderhood, age, grief, and death, and the complexity these ideas evoke when looked at from an environmental lens. Tears at CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton. Visit us at terrainforma.ca, and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss a beat. And we want to say thanks this week to our contributors, Dylan Hall, Amanda Rooney, Charlie Blaze, Sydney Carbonic, Tiana Barber-Cross, Charlotte Thompson, and Sophia Osborne. We've been your hosts, Hannah Cunningham and Elizabeth Dowdell. See you again next week, right here on Terra Informa. <laughs>